Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me on this Merry Christmas week is Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. That's Almost. like a British thing. Uh, it is. That's our yeah, NATO. We're uh, doing our NATO thing. <laughs> yeah. So you were asking about um, our last podcast with our Middle East 101 authors. Uh, really, really a great episode. Uh, those those two guys, um, their their expertise is, is you know unparalleled, and, and I think that show was a, a lot of fun. So if you're listening and you haven't heard that particular episode, recommend to check it out. It has a bunch of listens already since it was just posted on Friday, and here we are Monday, and it has over a thousand uh, listens already then, so it's, uh, it's, it's a popular one. But it is longer than our normal, normal show, but um, check that out. And is there anything else that uh, the listeners need to worry about in the next few days here in and around Beach Hall? Well, last week we put to bed the January issue of Proceedings, so that's off to the printers and should be uh, in your mailbox uh, if you get the print magazine on the on the first of January or right around the first of January. So uh, that's our surface warfare focused issue. Uh, we've got um, we had a piece that we published online only last week by Vice Admiral Brown, Commander of Naval Surface Forces. We're going to have him on the podcast. Uh, from SNA next month. For, yep, just before Surface Navy Association's annual symposium next week, uh, next month. I'm sorry. Uh, so Admiral Brown will be on probably the week of the right around the ninth or tenth. We're trying to work that with this. Oh, so we're not having him live from the show. We're we, having him week prior. We're having him week prior. Okay. Um, and then maybe he will walk around the floor and and yep. come by the booth while we're there. But we'll okay. be there doing a couple episodes of the podcast, uh, lining up some guests for that um, during the actual week of uh, of SNA. So, so January is our surface warfare theme issue. It is. Um, and uh, you'll remember last year we talked to the CEO of Surface Navy, and, and that was a great sort of 30,000-foot perspective on what's going on with the Surface Navy. Yep, that was uh, Vice Admiral Barry McCullough, retired. Uh, it was a good conversation. And so this year, Admiral Brown, uh, Commander of Naval Surface Forces, was, I, I think, probably motivated by that last year. Like, hey, I, let me get into proceedings. Let me be on the podcast and have a conversation with uh, with your listeners. So, uh, so with all the goings-on in the surface, good. you know, FFGX, all kinds of other stuff. What are we going to do with LCS? SWO, all the other SWO training, SWO career planning, equipping, yep, that, shipbuilding, all those things. Very much uh, a lot of topics that we got to cover. Uh, that the issue does cover and that we'll also cover on the uh, proceedings podcast. And we look forward to talking to the ship boss at that time. Fantastic. Yep. Um, for our listeners who might be working on essays for the general prize essay contest, the deadline is 31 December. So, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's the a deadline to receive, them, no, no, not no. to write them. The, d- right? the deadline for us to receive yes, them, for yes. people to write them and get them into us. Okay. Yes, it, it, you know, uh, maybe not a um, maybe not the best time to have a deadline. Uh, but you know, end of the year, we always that's our that's our oldest. Well, it could con- be. I'm very prolific around the holidays. Are you quiet? Yeah, right. seriously, okay. I'm right because yeah. get your thoughts together yeah. and you know. I mean, you're obviously, if you're just listening to this now on the 23rd, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have that. something I want to write about. You better get busy. Get to it. Get yeah. to it. But, but you uh, never know. Sometimes the last minute thing is the most yeah. uh, brilliant thoughts. 
you know, you just don't never know. And this right. I know we've already creating. got some, uh, and right now we're working through reading the um, record number of leadership essay contest essays that came in the middle of November. So uh, I got up through number 110 over the weekend out of 140, and then uh, my staff left me the, the remain, remaining 31 or 32 on my desk. Uh, so we'll get those out, and we'll get those uh, judged, and um, we always publish those, uh, some, the, the winner, sometime in the springtime. Uh, so we've got some really good uh, entries this year. I'm excited about that. We're also judging the Midshipmen and Cadets essay contest, and that came in in the middle of November. We're working those right now, so it's a busy time for essay contest deadlines. And um, you know, this is this is kind of the gouge, and we tend to tell this to people. Um, if you want to write for proceedings and have an idea, and if it aligns with an essay contest, leadership general prize is wide open. Um, you know, submit it to an essay contest because we will not just publish the winning, you know, top three, but we'll also evaluate all the entries uh, for publication in proceedings or on our blog or in some form or, or another. Uh, so if you write for an essay contest, you have a chance of winning five or six thousand dollars top prize money. That's the the, the top prize for the, uh, the general prize essay contest is six thousand dollars. And but if you don't win a prize, you still have a really good chance of uh, of getting published. So submit for an essay contest, and who knows, you might uh, you know you, you might win the lottery. So. So our listeners will remember last September we were at the Tailhook Convention out in Reno and we had uh, almost half a dozen guests when we were out there in our booth on the floor, the exhibition floor there at the Nugget. And also the theme of the September issue is always aviation, but this year, Bill, you and your team put together a fantastic collection of Top Gun-focused articles based on the fact that it was the 50th anniversary of the Navy Fighter Weapons School. One of the guys we didn't talk to, though, is on the phone with us today, Drano Malandrino, and he wrote an article called The Importance of Culture. Drano, thanks for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today. Uh, well, uh, Ward, it is uh, an, an honor and a, and a pleasure to be part of the podcast. Uh, sorry that I, I couldn't uh, make it up to Annapolis to be there in person. So, uh, Greg, it was great to uh, work with you back in the summertime uh, as we were putting this package together. And uh, uh, so I reached out to a number of people who we knew had been uh, influenced by Top Gun, were Top Gun instructors, had gone through the school uh, you know, sort of set the stage with a with a series of different pieces, and yours was the 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 second of the five that's in the print magazine, uh, the importance of culture. So, talk to us a little bit about what made you write about culture, uh, and what um, as you research this, what came out in the uh, the culture of the, the the Navy fighter community back in the 1960s. Well. Uh- First off, uh, thank you, Bill, for just the uh, the, the chance to, to take part in the conversation and, and to submit a piece. It was a, a real honor just to be uh, be in consideration and then to be selected was uh, with the 50th and everything for the anniversary of, of Top Gun's establishment. I uh, just uh, I could not be uh, luckier or more ecstatic to, to be uh, you know kind of part of the part of the group that gets uh, to commemorate that. So thank you. Um, for me, the the topic of culture. Uh, you know, ironically, since I couldn't make it back to the Naval Academy today, uh, actually goes all the way back to my aviation practicum as a as a first class midshipman. So um, I kind of focused there on the uh, the F eight Crusader community, and uh, I'd had a chance just you know at the at the academy to you know link up with with one or two former Crusader pilots, and uh, just as a young midshipman had 
uh, had dreams of being a, a Navy fighter guy and uh, you know, just growing up listening to, you know, kind of their stories, their experience as that, you know, kind of uh, played through through the uh, air war over North Vietnam. The importance of culture, you know, uh, I don't, you know, again, in my my early 20s, uh, <laughs> it definitely didn't uh, didn't become crystal clear. But, you know, I think it, it kind of planted a seed that, that later on in my time in the Navy really kind of uh, blossomed. Uh, and uh, into and, and seeing this and, and, and the culture of the force uh, as is really central to uh, how successful or, uh, or unsuccessful we may be uh, in just, you know, day-to-day operations, but then in, in my view, more importantly, uh, in combat. So um, specifically, uh, I, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, mention gets made uh, for the U.S. military in general and, you know, the Navy is, as well is, is really a focus on, on our hardware uh, software, uh, and, and then you, that'll kind of, uh, you know, build into, you know, kind of, you know, tactics, you know, maybe the way that the, we you know, structure the force as well. But very rarely, I think, do we do we really focus on the importance of the, the culture of our force and the way they look specifically at at war and, and warfare uh, and fighting, because, you know, I, I kind of really feel that it's uh, it's foundational to any 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 military to be successful in combat. Is to to build out that culture, and then from that culture, uh, you'll have you know tactics, uh, requirements, hardware, software, whatever it may be, that then uh, will will flow and, and evolve from that that kind of world outlook that that your culture has. So you know, kind of underlining the importance of getting the culture right, or as close as you can get to right, and then and then going from there. And and I really thought that. Uh, the uh, the F eight community and and then the way things went for the Navy fighter force uh, over North Vietnam uh, really underlines you know kind of the uh, the, the importance of of culture uh, not just hardware and, and tactics and you kind of juxtapose that with uh, the control group you know kind of being the uh, U S Air Force and their use uh, and their experience with the with the Phantom both during Rolling Thunder and then the, the line, linebacker one and two and and I, I, I think it, you just come away with this in, incredible appreciation for what a tremendous difference uh, kind of getting the culture right uh, will make to your success in combat, specifically in this instance uh, in aerial combat over North Vietnam against the, uh, the MiGs put up uh, by the North Vietnamese. So I remember when I went through the RAG uh, in the early 80s, the uh, F-8 guys really were the the real mavericks and the guys with the big personalities the rest of the community was was basically F4 lineage. Um, obviously, the Rios were all from the F4, um, unless they were Tomcat babies. So the article does a nice job of comparing and contrasting the two communities. And you also tee up the stats in Vietnam in the late 60s of the F4 kill ratio and the F8 kill ratio. I'd never heard it put that way before. Uh, so you can, can you talk about some of those details? So the the stats uh, again. I one one thing um, you're not necessarily dealing with an, an enormous number of engagement or just like you know hundreds of, hundreds of kills or opportunities. Uh, so uh, that that's one thing to kind of take into consideration. But uh, so the way you know you kind of break it down into into kind of two wars really um, from an air uh, air to air combat perspective. So for uh, for Rolling Thunder. Uh, with the uh, with the Phantom, you know, kind of looking to take the primary role for the the Navy's air to air fighter and the, and the F eight being the, uh, the the platform that had been uh, you know a bit uh, a bit longer in the tooth. Uh, you've got uh, for the Phantom during Rolling Thunder a total of uh, of thirty nine engagements uh, with with MIGs. 
Uh, and then from those 39 engagements, uh, they score uh, 12 kills uh, and then uh, lose, uh, you know, lose five phantoms. So, you know, in the vicinity of like a, a two to one kill ratio for Navy phantoms uh, during Rolling Thunder. And then basically uh, about 30 percent of their engagements, uh, they'll, they'll achieve a MIG kill. So, you know, one out of every three roughly engagements, uh, they're going to uh, be able to, to shoot down a MIG. And then uh, for the for the Crusader community, and here's where I, I think the numbers are, are just really, I, I just felt they're just stunning uh, because you have 25 engagements, so 25 to the, to the Phantoms, 39. And in those 25 engagements, uh, you've got uh, 18 kills uh, scored by, uh, by Navy Crusader pilots. So, so more kills uh, uh, and, uh, and much fewer engagements compared to what their, their Phantom brethren were seeing. Uh, and then, so they get it, and they uh, lose three Crusaders uh, during uh, Rolling Thunder to North Vietnamese MIG. So a six to one kill ratio, and then uh, for their uh, engagement efficiency, if you will. So if you go back to the Phantom, basically one out of every three engagements, uh, they're going to shoot down a MIG. And then for the Crusaders, uh, it's uh, it's three to three out of four. So uh, every time a Crusader pilot would meet a North Vietnamese uh, MIG in combat and an actual engagement three out of four times uh, they would actually end up shooting down uh, their opponent. So I just thought that was incredibly telling because you've got the Crusader, which, you know, four, uh, four 20 millimeter cannons at best, you've got the four, four sidewinders, you know, very early model sidewinders and, you know, an incredibly, you know, basic, uh, basic radar up front uh, compared to the Phantom, which is, you know, this cutting edge, the world's most technologically advanced fighter at the time uh, with the pilot Mario. Uh, incredibly advanced uh, radar and, and weapon system, you know, coupled with the, uh, the, the Sparrow uh, and uh, a combination there that just would, I think, would have done an incredible amount of damage uh, to uh, to bomber-sized targets, or if you had the, the ROE allowing them to engage BVR. But uh, but the ROE, and then I think um, in my piece, I kind of make the the point that their uh, their adaptability, their culture, I think, was a bit too scientific in the way that they looked at aerial warfare, whereas the, uh, the Crusader was far more adaptable and flexible and as a community and looked at, uh, looked at opportunity in combat, uh, to, you know, kind of outwit, outfight, uh, the adversary as opposed to, you know, maybe, you know, outthink or use, uh, use hardware to come up with a solution. So I think it's a real, uh, incredible example of the difference that an adaptable and flexible culture, uh, can make, uh, specifically in air to com air to air combat. You flash forward to, uh, the linebacker one and linebacker two, uh, and then you know after the establishment of Top Gun, and and, and by the way, the U.S. Air Force uh, with the the Phantom during Rolling Thunder, uh, very similar numbers uh, that uh, the Navy Phantom community saw. So you know, basically, a, a, approximately a, a two to one kill ratio. So then during linebacker two, you've got uh, now the the Navy uh, is employing uh, F4 crews, both pilots and Rios, which is important. Uh, that are Top Gun graduates, and they they've kind of. You know, taken, uh, you know, my, my premise was they've taken the, the culture of adaptability, flexibility, you know, kind of, uh, built on dogfighting from the Crusader community. And now they've applied that to this incredibly advanced fighter, uh, the F4 Phantom. And they, uh, absolutely decimate, uh, the North Vietnamese, uh, over, over North Vietnam with, uh, 24 kills during, uh, 26 engagements. So, uh, you, then you look at the Air Force again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of as a control group and what they were doing in the Phantom. And even uh, after the uh, the Air Force, you know, kind of doing a, their own deep dive after the, the lack of success, the way they termed it uh, over the skies of North Vietnam during Rolling Thunder. And they're also basically still at a, a two to one kill ratio after linebacker two. So, you know, I, I think, you know, Top Gun being this, this perfect 
uh, mix uh, and uh, and melting pot uh, that uh, mental agility, adaptability, and flexibility, and kind of cultural emphasis on uh, forcing the enemy to react to you from the Crusader, uh, coupled with you know a, a really advanced aircraft with some pretty impressive hardware. And you can see that uh, it, it doesn't go well for the North Vietnamese uh, over Hanoi uh, in linebacker two when they when they meet up with Navy Phantoms. So just to remind the audience, the F four was made by McDonnell even before it was McDonnell Douglas. Um, and the F-8 was made by Vought. Um, as you mentioned, Drano, the F-8, a single-seat airplane, uh, winders and a nose cannon, and the F-4 tandem seating. Uh, that was the f- first uh, airplane that had a radar intercept officer in it. Um, you know, the Tomcat had a radar intercept officer in it as well. Um, they now call that position weapon system officer. Um, but you go into some detail about the innovation piece vis-a-vis each community, and you actually quote Admiral Stockdale, um, who was a, a famous um, CAG and a POW as well, who was an F-8 guy. Um, so talk about the approaches uh, that each of those communities had pre-Top Gun to the idea of innovation. Uh, well, so I, I think the, uh, the the point I make in the, in the piece is you kind of look at the, uh, the F-4 community um, and uh, for innovation, they believe that uh, and, and I in no way I want anyone to come away with the impression that there wasn't innovation happening in the Phantom community. There was 100%, and there was uh, an adaptation occurring as well. Uh, but I'd say that it wasn't uh, it wasn't at anywhere near the speed that was required to to kind of get the community where they they thought that they would be before combat. And so I think they looked at innovation and achieving a greater success uh, in combat through uh, primarily. Uh, Increase in better hardware uh, and you know, basically warfare as a science. So you have the ability uh, to uh, use, you know, uh, engineering and study uh, to kind of uh, discover unknown, uh, unknown unknowns, uh, and then eliminate, uh, you know, kind of that 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 fog of combat, uh, that 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 friction uh, that's really just uh, you know, part and parcel of the nature of warfare. So they looked at, uh, you know, employing, uh, you know. You know, better, uh, better weapons, improving the sidewinder, obviously improving uh, the, uh, the the radar uh, up front. Eventually, they'll field the uh, the. Interestingly enough, I started off life in the F-14A Tomcat, and we had the uh, the Og-9, uh, and then uh, a later model Phantom will actually have the Og-10, uh, which I always found uh, I, I found interesting as a as a young Tomcat air crew. But basically, the the Phantom community are really looking to master their craft, which they viewed primarily their number one mission. Uh, to uh, you know, defend the fleet from air attack uh, from uh, large bomber aircraft. So, a uh, constant repetition of blocking and tackling of those those kind of known tasks uh, that you can identify and execute uh, in in an intercept. And then because of that, it, it became a very kind of hierarchical structure. So as you look at innovation, it's really kind of like a top down uh, instead of like a, a bottom up uh, methodology. Uh, I, I think that's how they were kind of culturally arranged. Yeah, and, and the, to, uh, to the, that to that point, um, again talking about the hardware and the hardware leading to tactics, um, you have two guys in the F four. One guy's dedicated to creating a radar picture and talking the pilot into an intercept. Uh, you have a Sparrow missile, which is a longer range missile um, than the Sidewinder, certainly. Um, so, and and I used the F eight radar when I was going through Rio training, and it's a piece of junk. Right. So I'm sure the pilots, the pilots didn't 
didn't go heads down a whole lot, right? They're just waiting for a vector, their eyes out, and they're they're immediately getting into a visual arena where the F4 crews have trained to do this sort of more, it's not really static, may, that's maybe the wrong term, but, but a more by-the-numbers, um, student-body-right sort of approach to an attack-re-attack and, and that sort of thing. But as we know, the tactical environment in Vietnam seldom lent itself to a long-range intercept. Right. It was these sort of pop up vector go. And now you were maybe at best 15, 20 mile setups. And so now you're already at the merge. And so now you also point out that F4 pilots, F4 crews didn't do as much 1v1 training because they figured that they would have this technological advantage that would keep them from having to do that. But that wasn't the case. And, and I think that uh, there's some interesting uh Interesting quotes from uh, Commander uh, John Nichols, who was a Crusader pilot uh, and MIG killer, about the Phantom community and then their their lack of training to uh, fighter versus fighter, uh, you know, dynamic maneuvering, uh, dogfighting, uh, based on the risk associated with losing aircraft uh, just in training, much less uh, much less in combat. So uh, the 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 Phantom uh, community, that I think your your point is spot on in the fact that uh, warfare was a very uh, bounded exercise. Uh, you weren't necessarily dealing with the unknown. You're more looking to um, increase your efficiency on, the, you know, kind of the variable to the, you, you knew your aircraft, your radar, your weapon, and, and matching that to your target. You know, matching, uh, you know, uh, controlling the amount of lateral separation you had so you could achieve, you know, a, a stern weapons engagement zone uh, on, a, on a target, whatever it may be. Where the Crusader uh, never, community never abandoned uh, the, uh, the art of, Art of dogfighting and fighter versus fighter combat, and then the associated uh, embracing of risk that came with that, and then uh, losses, uh, losses in training. So uh, the Crusader um, thought about innovation was more bottom up instead of uh, instead of top down. So knowing that when you were going to go into combat, you wouldn't know exactly what scenario you're going to face. And and I think air to air combat over North Vietnam is a perfect example of. Uh, the fact that you know, uh, I don't think anyone in the United States military and the fighter community saw, uh, you know, visual uh, IEDs happening at the merge and having to fight uh, North Korean MIGs, uh, you know, post-merge is, is what their war was going to be like. In that Crusader community, the, the idea of the uh, the loose deuce and the fact that um, you're going to have to deal with whatever you're presented in combat, and the best way to do that is with an adaptability and flexibility that allows you to. Um, kind of overcome unforeseen circumstances uh, faster than your adversary, as opposed to trying to kind of fit the reality of the war you're fighting into the, the you know, kind of pre-briefed uh, mindset you had uh, before, uh, before the initiation of hostilities. So you commanded an F-18 squadron just a few years ago, VFA-102. What, years did, what year did you go through Top Gun? Uh, I... <laughs> um, I'm embarrassed to say it was a very long time ago, uh, longer than I'd like it to have been. But uh, I uh, classed up in uh, the fall of 2004 and then uh, finished and got patched in the beginning of 2005. So It's not that it long ago. Long yeah. Yeah, I was the, already retired from the Navy well, by that time. Yeah, to see, to, well, to, to warn me, that wasn't that long ago. My, That's like my yesterday. Jails, my James would disagree with you. It's, it's ancient history. Yeah, okay. of course. Okay. But... but uh, 
so this difference in the culture between the the Phantom community in the 1960s and the Crusader community, F8 community, uh, and you just you just mentioned that you know that the Crusader guys you know went into any fight not knowing what they were going to experience and sort of ready for um, whatever whatever happened, and then that culture suited them well to what actually happened in in the skies over north vietnam uh where there weren't these long-range intercepts it wasn't soviet bombers coming out to attack the fleet uh right and so it was it was very loosey-goosey it was very uh hey you know got to adapt you got to just maneuver and and basic fighter maneuvers and so that culture you know was was there um so when you went through top gun and as you understand it today from your jo's um when when uh, students are taken off for a hop in in Top Gun, to what extent do they know what they're facing in terms of the threat, and to what extent do they face a surprise every time they get in the skies, uh, so that there is that uh, aspect of adaptability built into the training? Uh, I think it's a uh, it, it's a huge credit to, to Top Gun that um, I and you know I, you'd have to ask folks that they went through it well before me, but. You know, I, I was of the impression that that uh, adaptability and flexibility and uh, remo- uh, moving away from uh, scripted um, exercises and anticipated bandit reactions or maneuvers, whatever it may be, that I, I think that my impression was that all died uh, in the uh, in the sixties with the establishment of Top Gun. So my my experience as a student was uh, uh, at times uh, very frustrating due to my my lack of performance because you're forced to deal with situations that. You couldn't, you know, sit down and, and share fly with your Wizzo. Uh, you couldn't get your division together and be like, okay, when we see the following, we will do X. Uh, so I, I think the, the, one of the huge things you come away from, uh, going through the, the course with is that appreciation for, uh, uh you need to have a, the basic ability, uh, to execute regardless of the scenario and to deal with the unforeseen. So as opposed to, mastering the known it's it's being able to cope with uh, the the unknown and so being uh you know creative recognizing new situations and and when you kind of have to step out of the mold uh but then you know the first the kind of first thing that you need to have as a as an aviator in order to do that is is an incredibly uh solid ability to execute the basics so it's not you show up on day one and just you're kind of free form making it up on your own but rather uh you know top gun drills into you uh, the uh, the programming, if you will, where you know specifically in the F-18, uh, which is the platform I went through, just your uh, your fingers are executing the the HOTAS uh, for the incredible systems in the airplane, and uh, and your brain's able to to cope with all the information you have coming in, as opposed to you know, like okay, how do I do the following uh, basic pieces? So uh, I think Top Gun then and now does a tremendous job of of really um, imparting to each and every one of its graduates uh, the ability to adapt and flex uh, to the unforeseen. And, and you know, I, I think that's, that, that's the key lesson, you know, I, I kind of saw through my research. And, and that's one thing I wanted uh, the, the air crew and my squadron to come away from is uh, the ability to, to, adapt, to, the, to d- adapt to the unknown in combat. And it's, uh, it's an interesting question as well, because I think if you look at the war, that uh, naval aviation has been involved in since uh, since 2001 with the you know the global war on terror and, and how that morphs into OIF, OEF, ONR, etc. Is those uh, those types of combat operations? Uh, there's they're very bounded. Um, you know when you're employing uh, 
you know, fires uh, in support of uh, ground combat element, uh, you, you are not uh, clearly at risk in the same way you would be in aerial combat. Uh, there are far fewer kind of variables in that, uh, in that equation. Uh, so your, your ability to fight uh, becomes very uh, dogmatic. You, you, you need to know the spins. You need to know the ROE cold. Uh, but your ability to kind of exist outside of those is incredibly limited. And, uh, and I think Top Gun has done a tremendous job of, you know, kind of being the, the keepers of the flame of that adaptability and flexibility to, to deal with, uh, the unknown of actual combat. Uh, so it, you know, kind of forms the, uh, the basis, the foundation, if you will, for, for I think the strike fighter community going forward uh, as the, uh, you know, we kind of inculcate all the, all the implications to the force of this, you know, uh, from the uh, the uh, national defense strategy and the return of great power competition and and having to go toe to toe against a, a pure adversary. Well, Bill, you remember we we had that conversation with Proton and Pops when we were out there, and we and you specifically asked them, "How are you postured for the return to pure competition?" And and uh, that's kind of what what Drano just said is kind of what we were hearing from them as well. Yeah, definitely. But I also remember, uh, uh, particularly Pops, uh, sort of mentioning that uh, they're struggling with uh, because of the, you know, it's diff- very difficult and, and expensive to get uh, fourth gen and fifth gen, uh, you know, fighter uh, aggressor score, you know, aggressor aircraft, right? And so, you know, when you're up against a, uh, you know, a pure competitor, uh, you know, the Soviet or Russian, you know, Russian Air Force, Russian Navy flying uh, SU 35s, et cetera. Uh, the Chinese flying their equivalents and, and with some stealth aircraft, you know, so what do you, what are we going to fly? What is the, the U.S. Navy and Air Force going to fly for aggressor aircraft, yeah, right? To simulate to, that to threat. To simulate that threat. Yeah. That's a hard one. Well, um, hey, uh, Greg, I got another question for you related to the sort of cultural shift. It, it occurs to me that this time period that you're writing about as, as Top Gun was brought online, um, you know, sort of, the Navy was going through a shift in the technology and, and the type of jet that they were flying. So you, and your, your article mentions, you know, the, the difference in the, uh, the F-8 crews versus the F-4 and the F-4 being the newest, you know, most advanced fighter in the world. And right now the Navy is, um, you know, experiencing a shift from the Super Hornet. Uh, and some Super Hornets are being upgraded and there's, you know, a, a newer F, you know, newer Super Hornets with, uh, you know, newer radars, et cetera, conformal uh, drop tanks and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but the Navy is also incorporating F-35s and Marine Corps get more F-35s coming online faster. Um, what's your sense of the cultural, are there cultural differences between the Super Hornet crews, particularly, you know, E and F, so single seat versus two seat, and then moving to the fifth generation uh, F-35? Uh, that's a, that's a great question, Bill. Um, the, uh, for, as we talked to the F-35, um, I, uh, I, I've had limited experience, uh, and exposure to, uh, you know, a lot of folks who've flown the F-35. So, you know, I, I, and anything I could offer you would be just, just conjecture. I, I would say that, um, it, you know, just everybody that knows anything about the program from anything they've read about it, there's an incredible, uh, amount of new capability there. Uh, and so I, I think that there would be a, I would anticipate uh, a very uh, a large kind of cultural shift because I would hope that uh, with with that uh, with that platform uh, with that aircraft that we wouldn't and and I don't think that anyone has this as a as a plan that we would not you know employ it as you know basically a, a kind of stealthy F eighteen I think that'd be a 
that'd be an incredible, um, incredible shortcoming if we did do that. So I think there would have to be a cultural shift with the F-35 based on um, you know, its capabilities, what it will be able to do, uh, as opposed to what you could do uh, with, a, with an F-18. Um, I think culturally with a, a single seat and a two seat squadron, uh, it's a, again, I, I really like the question. I, um, majority of my experience was with the, with, was with two seat F-18s. Um, and, and I, I worked very hard to, um, in part to my, uh, to my entire, uh, ready room. The fact that, uh, the, the, the WISO is, as, as Ward mentioned, uh, isn't just a, you know, weapon systems officer, but, you know, is a, is a co-pilot. So, you know, the fact that they don't have flight controls uh, is just a you know a hardware limitation on, on what they're going to be able to you know immediately do. But the the use of ICS uh, and you know incorporating them into uh, into you into the aircraft is absolutely essential. And so that's where we can you kind of talk about a two seat airplane and, and going from the Tomcat where you had a very definitive uh, you know wall between the pilot and the Rio as to who could do what uh, just based on the way the airplane was built in the uh, in the Super Hornet and the two seat Super Hornet. Uh, you, you, re- you know, obviously with the exception of, you know, throttles and flight controls, um, there's really no uh, wall between the, the cockpit. So crew coordination becomes even more important uh, than, than I felt it was in, in the Tomcat. Uh, and, and there being, I think it's very uh, culturally, I think it's actually a bit more, it's a bit more challenging to get a, a pilot and a WIZO. Uh, to perform at a level that, uh, on average, would, would outperform a single-seat pilot. And here's why I think that is. And the same sort of thing, if you take, if I ask you to go on a, you know, go on a, go on a, a week-long business trip and set up all your own engagements, do all your own travel, whatever it is, when you operate by yourself, it's, you know, you've got a lot to do, but it's very easy. There's no coordination required. You're like, okay, well, this, I'd like to fly United Airlines. Here's where I'd like to eat. Here's where I'd like to do this. Here's how long I'd like my meetings. When you put another person in that, in that in that similar role, so when anytime you put two people together, coordination becomes uh, exponentially more more difficult as you work through you know just like you know, getting to the airport at the same time or you know how are we going to sit next to each other whatever it may be and that's a very um, you know kind of simple example you put two people in a, a, a fighter aircraft and, and to get them to uh, to outperform someone that doesn't have to worry about well do I do this task do they do that do they see this. Um, it's, uh, it requires more time and effort. And in, in my experience, uh, you can, if you get the, uh, the right pilot uh, with the right WIZO and the right WIZO with the right pilot, uh, and they, they click, uh, then that team of two, uh, can, can outperform, uh, somebody, you know, doing it, uh, doing you know, the same task, you know, by themselves. And they would outperform them in an environment that where, you know, things don't meet the expectations where you can't, uh, force uh, what you're seeing at the merge or what's happening out at range or what, you know, some service air missile system is doing to you where it's not it, the, the expectations set forth in the brief aren't, aren't there. So that, that team of two uh, can, could outperform the, the single, but then also if you, uh, if you kind of fail to have that, that mind meld uh, and that, that really good crew pairing, uh, then it is a, uh, it, it's an incredibly difficult environment to work in uh, as you're, you're kind of like at odds uh, with the other person in the cockpit. So culturally, I think it's a little bit harder to get the, the culture of a, of a two-seat F-18 squadron uh, right. But then I think if when you do get it right, that, you know, the, the sky's the limit on, on how well you can perform. And, and that doesn't mean to say that uh, a single-seat squadron, uh, it, it's easier, but you've got a smaller number of people, and then you're going to have individuals that are task-loaded in the aircraft, but it's them 
in the airplane. And they know that, hey, I've got to do all these things myself. So it's more a, uh, they're, they're really busy trying to churn through all those tasks as opposed to two people, you know, trying to, okay, you know, function as a team together. Being a, a Rio, Dreno, I, I stand your logic on its head in terms of what was problematic for me in the Tomcat community was a pilot with a single seat, quote unquote, mentality, right? So yes. um, that's the opposite of the forcing function of having two people work together. And, and so let, let me take it back to Bill's question about the communities, because when we were talking about the F4 versus the F8, I was thinking in my mind, and when I was reading your article about fourth gen versus fifth gen, and to what Bill's asking about F-35 pilots. And, and so what I've heard and what scares me is when you, as a Tomcat guy, you talk about speed, right? So a Tomcat could go 1.8, a B or a D could go 1.8. A F-35 can barely get supersonic. And when faced with that, they say, well, you don't need speed anymore, right? Because of this, the, the airplane's got, it's more lethal and it's stealth. And, and so that thing that you're talking about is a variable from an era gone by. So I think the lesson for, and check me on this, the lesson from the F4, and this sounds like what could be the lesson for the F35 community is if you believe capability will eclipse the need for innovation, now you're sailing in dangerous waters. Would you agree with that? I, I do, and uh, I, I think the, the so to the to the the point you made about the F thirty five and its and its top end compared to a Tomcat. But uh, if you're attempting to be you know perform the role of a fleet interceptor, uh, and and your answer when someone brings up like, hey, we used to be able to do one point eight, and now you can do you know you're you're basically you know just busting the number. Uh, you're going to be less effective as a fleet interceptor if you don't have. Uh, a, a high top end compared to the adversary. I mean, that's, that's just physics. Um, so, and I think the, the, the larger point you make of, you know, Hey, if you're attempting to kind of, you know, bridge over these, these gaps in capability with, you know, um, being low observable or uh, a new bit of hardware or software processing, uh, I think you're, you're taking a tremendous risk because I, I do think there's some constants of aerial combat that, uh, I think that the, the air wing is uh, hopefully kind of returning to understand and appreciate and, you know, range, payload and speed uh, are, are key to what we're, we're going to have to need to, to do in the future to deal with the threat. Um, my, my, uh, my, my, my dad was a 111 pilot in the Air Force and he used to make fun of me uh, in the, as, when I was in the Tomcat for flying a slow airplane. And then he, he asked me how things were in the Super Hornet. And, and when I, I told him how fast I'd been in the Super Hornet, he was shocked <laughs> because he'd been making fun of me being the Tomcat, uh, for a slow airplane. And, you know, the Super Hornet's not as fast as the, uh, as the Tomcat. So I, I think if you need to go, need to get as far away from the ship as you can, as fast as you can to deal with the adversary, then speed, uh, speed is life. And I mean, that's been a, a maximum throughout aerial combat. And I don't, I don't see that changing if you're if you're doing a, an air-to-air role, and it, it gives you so many options. You can you can deny an adversary an engagement uh, if you have a speed advantage, um, but and, and if you don't, then uh, they're going to choose when and where they want to fight you, uh, and then and you're going to have to accept that. Well, it's uh, ironic that your dad was an F-111 guy, since you flying the F-14A had the same motor 
the only difference is the TF-30 was actually made for the F-111 and was sort of yeah, jammed yeah, I, into the, uh, in the F-14A. I, I brought that up repeatedly to him, um, uh, based on specifically my experience in VF-101 as a cone and, uh, getting yelled at for, uh, compressor stuff. Yeah. By my instructor. Yeah. That's, that's great. So, uh, you're at OSD right now, Drano. Um, how long are you going to be there and what's, what's coming after that? Uh, I'm, uh, let's see, I've been there for about five months. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how things, uh, how things play out with you know, major command selection for next year. Uh, I should be there for the next, uh, the next two and a half years. And then, um, and, and we'll, we'll kind of see what the, uh, what the Navy has, to, has to offer and, 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 uh, what options you know, I've got for kind of future employment. I mean, it'd be amazing to, to get back uh back to the fleet uh if not uh, the work i'm doing now is uh, is really incredible and i consider myself very lucky to to be on uh to be on the team i'm on so uh greg since you wrote this article last summer you've been promoted if if i'm not uh, mistaken correct I, uh, that is correct yes all right well uh, congratulations I, captain yeah thank you uh, thank you i, I, I it, it's 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 great to walk around the, the Pentagon as an O six. It makes your life <laughs> it makes your life a lot easier than walking around as a commander. You get some sideways looks when you're, you're an O five. So uh, it, it's tremendous. <laughs> well, I remember uh, when I was lieutenant commander working in the Pentagon, and I was uh, walking uh, around for a tour. Then uh, Petty Officer First Class Russ Smith, now the MCPON. Uh, he had come up from Norfolk to visit me. He'd never been to the Pentagon before. We walk around the, the A-ring, and after about uh, 20, 30 minutes, he, he turned to me and he goes, Sir, you know, you can't swing a dead cat in this building without hitting an 05. And I said, you're right about that. Uh, so you've made the transition from commanding a Hornet squadron to uh, the halls of the Pentagon, and it sounds like it hasn't been too terrible. Uh, well, you, you know, when you go from having uh, what I would consider the, the best job in the Navy, which is squadron commanding officer, um, you know, we, we all have to kind of, uh, I guess the, uh, aviation kind of being a, a Peter Pan profession where you, know, you don't want to grow up and, and you get to fly, uh, you know, eventually we all kind of have to grow up. So to be able to go out on top as the commanding officer out in Japan of, of a tremendous squadron with, uh, you know, some great JOs, uh, department heads, uh, and, and sailors, uh, and then, you know, kind of find myself in a job in the Pentagon doing some, some really interesting work. Uh, yeah. If you, if you have to leave it, uh, to leave it for something that, that's really rewarding, it's just a, you know, a, you know, a cherry on top. Well, Captain Greg Melandrino wrote an article in the Top Gun package in the September issue of Proceedings. It was called The Importance of Culture. If you pull out your uh, September Proceedings or, or uh, search on our archive online, you can find, uh, find it on page 20, starting on page 26 of the September issue of Proceedings, The Importance of Culture. Captain Greg Malandrino, been great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for your uh, for writing for us, and uh, we hope that the uh, major command screen board goes well for you uh, in 2020, and that you get back out there as either uh, an air wing commander or uh, on the on the pipeline to be a CEO of a of a aircraft carrier. Well, Bill, uh, well, thank you uh, very much again for the for the opportunity to to kind of continue the conversation, uh, and just the, the the proceedings has been doing some great work. I think really. You know, kind of changing the way that uh, that we looked at, you know, we look at the problems that are facing the Navy. So uh, it's a it's a really exciting time to to be working on these, and I appreciate the all the work you guys are doing to to help the Navy kind of move forward uh, with some creative thinking to come up with some solutions to some really uh, wicked problems. And and hope to get to Annapolis. I got a I got an old copy of Punk's War that uh, I need to get an autograph from Ward in, uh, which I I read as a as a Cohen back in my one on one days. Oh, fantastic! I'd love to see you over here. 
All right. Well, that wraps up our last episode of the Proceedings Podcast for 2019. We will catch you in 2020. We wish uh, health and happiness for all of our listeners. And thank you for helping make this uh, a really successful uh, 2019 for, as the podcast has grown considerably this year, probably up 30, 40% from the beginning of the year. And um, until next year, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.